This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's time now for another look at health care. And here's our chief health editor, Jim Glassman, introducing our next What Happens When story. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good? Patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad? The system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even basic things work or cost. The ugly? Well, there are some diseases that just aren't fair. And the path to discovering treatments for those diseases is awfully complicated. But as we'll see, there's plenty of love, hope, and even joy in stories with great tragedy. This What Happens When episode is what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Faith Garcia. Take it away, Faith. There is no easy way to talk about this subject. So, we're going to just take it head on. Right now, we're on a grief journey, right? I mean, it's changed a lot for our lives since diagnosis. And now, since Mila's died, the grief journey started before she died because the anticipatory nature of our situation with the girls and Batons. But then, even with Mila dying, that... You're really on a new, on a real grief path. I mean, a different, much more tangible grief path that we each work through. And we are at different spots, and those paths have totally different routes through the maybe even different forests. But at the end of the day, you are going to the same place. I mean, I have to talk about it like I know what I'm talking about, and I don't. I mean, I feel like I'm two steps into my grief path, which will last a lifetime. That's Frazier Gieselman who, with his wife Dana, kindly welcomed us into their home in Memphis to talk about having two daughters with a rare genetic disease called CLN2 Batten disease. This condition causes protein to accumulate in the brain, killing working cells and leading to language problems, seizures, losing the ability to walk, blindness, dementia, and eventually death. Batten claimed the Gieselman's middle daughter, Mila, just three weeks after her sixth birthday. And their youngest daughter, Elle, is fighting it now with the help of some new cutting-edge drug therapies. But to understand the Gieselman family's healthcare story, we have to start with their love story. Frazier and Dana overlapped by a few years in high school in Memphis. But Dana moved away to Birmingham, Alabama when she was 15. Lucky for Frazier, they both wound up attending college at Auburn, and fell into the same group of very close friends. And once they began dating, well, things moved pretty fast. We pretty much knew that uh, things were serious from the get-go. Whatever, I knew I had to tie it down (laughs) before she ran away. (laughs) So yeah, I wasn't gonna mess around with that and was eager to keep that ball rolling. So we got married, that was, so we graduated from Auburn in 2000. It was the spring of 02, 
and you know we had been friends and the being group friends helped you know we knew each other real well i mean the whole group did the guys and the girls so as things kind of changed between me and dana and i went to her and i was like hey i think things are kind of changing and kind of want to see where that goes and she was like no no we're not doing that i'm in birmingham you're in memphis no so two weeks went by and i called her back and i was like okay you're full of doo-doo you know she was like okay i am and i was like great let's roll so that springboard took off great for about two months we did the long distance thing from birmingham and the whole time in my head i mean i knew her well enough and i was at a point where i was like i'm not doing this to date forever i don't i didn't date a whole lot of people you know it wasn't my thing i guess so when this started going i kind of knew what we were doing and where I wanted to go. And then she came back about a month before we got engaged and said, hey, this ain't gonna work. I can't do long distance and I'm never moving to Memphis. Because we were in two different cities and we had such a strong foundation for the last couple of years, when he approached me about dating, it just, I think, kind of panicked me because it was a big decision. It wasn't just, hey, let's go out to dinner and see what happens. We were long distance and the friendship was going to throw it immediately into serious territory. And so I think I just freaked out a little bit at the beginning and then realized what we had with our relationship. And I just really admired the way that he pursued me, honestly, and was just so strong in that way and knowing what he wanted and not letting my fears, unfounded fears, get in the way of that. Just kind of being able to see through me in a good way. And then about a month or six weeks into dating, um, yeah, I, I kind of freaked out again and didn't want to move to Memphis and just kind of had a little come apart. He talked to me back from the ledge and again just like he had told me before he was in it and not going anywhere and I was able to struggle with all my own fears and doubts knowing that he was gonna stay and that gives you freedom right to to work through things when you're not scared that person's just gonna bolt especially when they start to see you know some yucky sides of you and we all have a yucky side. When we come back, more from Fraser and Dana Gieselman, more of their love story, their family story, and their healthcare story, here on Our American Stories, our What Happens When story.
is Our American Stories, and we return to our What Happens When series. As always, brought to us by our Chief Health Editor, Jim Glassman, Faith Garcia, doing the narrating and reporting. Let's get back to the Gieselman story in Memphis. The Gieselmans did not waste any time. They dated for three months, were engaged for three months, and then the newlyweds were off on their adventure together. Looking back today on their childhoods, families, churches, and years together before the birth of their first daughter, Anne Carlisle, the Gieselmans see it all as just preparation for the challenges to come. There's a, a foundation there where you realize that the way you act out in marriage is just reflective of a lot of things, but it's death to self, right? And if, I, if, if I'm dying to myself, putting her first as far as our marriage goes, that plays itself out in a lot of aspects in life. And of course, nobody's perfect at it. And of course, we certainly stub our toes and <laughs> takes a lot of work. But having the friendship that we built on and that foundation has helped a lot for where we are today. We didn't know it then. I mean, we had no clue that what we were doing then was laying the foundation we would need for now, which, I mean, is directly tied to to Christ and our faith and what those truths are in our lives and what we see it play out from day to day and, and looking back and I mean, just in little things, even getting the six months and getting married, you know, and we had good time. That seven years before we had in Carlisle was great time for us to build our relationship. We needed a little extra time. <laughs> of course, it wasn't all goofing off during those years. Frazier built a career in banking and Dana found a new calling. She had graduated with an exercise science degree, but she had always thought about becoming a nurse except that hospitals made her queasy, not to mention needles. But she figured she could get over it if she wanted it bad enough. And nearby, Union University allowed college graduates to get a BSN degree in nursing in just one year. It was a hard hard year, but I'm very glad, and I did get used to hospitals and queasiness. Got used to? Um, I mean, tell me And I went and worked after graduating uh, at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in the NICU. That's the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Which is a special calling, which <laughs> you are gifted to be called into that. I mean, I, every time, I've only been up to the NICU, I think, twice. I can't go in. I mean, it's a very hard place and hard to see the kids suffering, but it's beautiful to see Dana and the people that most of the people that work up there love those kids and are not intimidated at all. In fact, that gives them more reason to embrace, which I mean, I respect a ton the people that are able to do that, which is a big deal. I mean, you didn't fall backwards into that. I mean, you were called, I mean, it was clear, like, I'm doing this, this is what I love, and it's been great seeing your passion. I mean, that was not just. <laughs> well, and it seems that God was preparing me to even medically take care of my own children. Indeed, he was preparing them. The Gieselmans soon started having their own children. We had Ann Carlisle in 2009, and then (laughs) our brilliant plan was, once we start having kids, let's go ahead and have them so that as you move through each phase, you, you don't revisit it, right? So diapers being a big one. Once we put the diapers away, I don't want them back out, right? <laughs> so 
And let's get let's go through. So we did. Uh, they're basically eighteen months apart. So two thousand nine, ten, and twelve. Well, and we were able to get pregnant the first time pretty quickly, but we lost that baby with a miscarriage, and then it took us a while to get pregnant again. So that was a pretty hard time as well in our lives. When we had the miscarriage, I, we were upstairs in the panel room, you know, we just sat up there crying for a while. I mean, I remember saying it then, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just here with you. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what our path is. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I know that I'm not, I mean, I'm here. And that's where you're, you realize that what it does is it frees you to be broken. And as far as me and Dana go, I mean, it just was this deal. It's like, look, I'm, I want to be here. It's not just I'm going to be here. It's not just I don't have anywhere else to go. It's I want to be here. I'm not, <laughs> I well, don't want. You, you have to but you've built- actively love someone. You have to make a choice. You just have to choose to to be with that person. And I think fostering a friendship and keeping that friendship alive through our marriage. And Frazier and Dana have chosen well. Soon they had three beautiful daughters, Anne Carlisle, Mila, and Elle. Everybody was born healthy and had you know normal development Mila had a speech delay but other than that they were all extremely active strong-willed silly babies I, I joke because I'm I grew up very shy and introverted I just kept waiting for my little introverted child to come along and none ever did <laughs> they all got the Gieselman genes on that which is wonderful. I think it's helped all three of our children to have a feisty personality, even in just different ways. And then one day, Dana noticed something odd with their middle daughter, Mila, the one they like to call rough and tumble, because she so loved playing and being a complete ham. She was about two and a half and um, he had gone out of town for work and I had a babysitter coming over because I was going to go have dinner with some girlfriends. Right before the sitter got there I had been feeding the three girls their dinner and Mila had finished and had gotten up and was kind of playing in the kitchen and I looked over and she was just frozen in space. One leg up, one arm kind of up like a statue, just frozen. And I thought she was kidding with me because she's was so silly all the time and I just kind of was distracted with the other two girls but kind of looked back at Mila and saying you know you silly goose what are you doing after a couple minutes of that she fell down on her back and kind of bonked her head just a little bit so I went over there and you know like you do with kids you try not to make an injury a big deal because (laughs) then they'll think it's a big deal so it's like oh you hit your head it doesn't hurt you're fine you know and um, so I was kind of doing that tickling her and she wasn't responding and I still kind of I kind of was like this is weird but again distracted by the other two still thinking she was just kidding with me and laying there and then I tickled her again got no response her eyes were open but no response and she was kind of looking up at the ceiling and I knew at that point something was wrong I'm there by myself I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old trying not to freak out. Minutes go by. I can't get Mila to respond to me. 
And at that point, I knew it was either seizure stuff or I thought she could possibly be having a stroke. My babysitter gets there, I run to the door to let her in and tell her to call 911. It was one of the most scary times of my life, just not knowing if I'd ever get her back. She started to kind of come back around, but I had her in my arms and she was just sobbing and wailing my name. I was you know, holding her close, kissing her, hugging her, talking right into her ear, and she could not, like, she did not know I was there. Not being able to comfort your child, even, and she was just so scared, and, and all that was just very difficult, and obviously not having Fraser there, too, but the paramedics finally got there. Everything happening so fast that I think all I texted Fraser, I tried to call him, but he was at, like, a dinner with business and so he didn't answer and I texted Mila's in the ambulance <laughs> called me so of course he's like what in the world but we you know they took us to live honor and she was fine the rest of the night they wanted to observe her and everything and that began the Gieselman family's quest to figure out what it was that was happening it actually isn't all that odd for a kid to have one seizure but that's not what Mila was going through as the seizures picked up in the fall, from November to January, it went from one a month to 100 plus a day in January, and it only ramped up from there. Milla was soon in and out of various labs, getting all sorts of brain scans and other studies, but nothing offered a clear answer. Scans showed that Milla's brain was not growing, and then an MRI showed that it was actually degenerating. Our doctor knew it fell into a category of rare diseases that you don't want <laughs> and that would take her life at an early age. I remember us sitting on that couch in the room and him sitting across from us telling us and like I just I didn't shed a tear. I was kind of like in medical mode and asking medical questions and things and thinking this is weird. Why am I not crying? <laughs> but then he left the room and I literally just couldn't stand. And when we come back, this young married couple faces the biggest test of their lives. Our What Happens When story continues. The Gieselman story. This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with the healthcare story of the Kieselman family. We just learned how parents Fraser and Dana got the most devastating news possible for young parents, any parents, that their daughter Mila, who was having hundreds of seizures a day, had a mystery disease that would almost certainly claim her life. Let's hear more from Dana. That was kind of the night we were having to deal with okay, life is not what we thought it was going to be. Neither of us could eat. You know, we spent the week just going, what in the world? I mean, there were no words, kind of. We would just sit there and go, what is happening? Two or three days after we left the hospital, they called us and said they had the genetic results. So then we knew it was actually Batten disease and that 
they could have it. The other two girls could have it. And we needed to get them tested. So we went a month in the limbo of just trying to deal with what we knew about Mila at that point. And oh my gosh, do one of the other girls have it? Do they both? Will they all have this? And we were in the middle of moving to this house and doing some renovations. So it was just a crazy time. I was standing in the foyer directing the movers where to put things. It was about six o'clock at night and I get a phone call from our neurologist and you know, on a Saturday night, not good. He said, is Fraser around? Can I y'all both get on the phone? And so we went outside and and did and he told us that Ann Carlisle didn't have it, wasn't even a carrier, but that Elle did. I remember exactly where we were sitting over there on the grass outside. And there were, you know, 20 people in our house, movers, family, friends, wonderful people trying to get us moved. So we kind of walked around the neighborhood a little bit and, and I was like, everybody has to get out of the house. Like I can't go back to the house and have 20 people in there and nobody would clear out. Everybody was like, we've got to get the furniture. We've got to get like we at were, least Dana's bed sheets on. Of course you we know, were like, but, no you don't. Yeah. Get out. But um, so some people stayed for a little bit longer and he just, Fraser, wonderfully led me through the house and tucked me away in our room so I didn't have to deal with anything else and he kind of just took over and he's done that a lot. <laughs> just protected me and kind of sheltered me from a little bit of the storm as much as he can. And the next day was Mila's birthday. And the hits, they just kept on coming. Three days after we found out her diagnosis is when Elle had her first seizure. Just watching TV, you know, half asleep on the couch and Elle let out, like a, we heard on the monitor, like this kind of weird cry, like that she had never done before and usually you know when a baby or toddler lets out one cry you're kind of like okay let's see if they'll get back to sleep on their own but fortunately Fraser went back there immediately and comes running out with her Elle's having a seizure I mean it just was kind of in that time period of like what more like what more can we I can't take anymore and then more would just be like piled on piled on piled on now with two young daughters who were having up to hundreds of seizures a day, the Gieselmans went into full caretaker mode. Modern medicine is absolutely amazing, but any good doctor will still admit that they have to do a lot of trial and error with all the tools in their kit. For these seizures, the Gieselmans had to figure out what drugs to use, at what doses, and in what combinations. So the med combo we played, literally changing either meds or doses of meds once or more a week with Mila for over a year. To the point, like, we had to keep a written list. She was on anywhere from two to eight different medicines, three, four times a day. And she did lay a good path for Elle where we weren't playing as many games, a little bit more doses, not meds. So that was helpful. But with Mila, I mean, it was just... We had to write down the meds, and every time they change, you got to go through and change what the meds are. So we had the drawer with the sheet of paper, which literally was having to be reprinted every two weeks because you've made so many written changes on it. These drugs helped control the seizures, or at least reduce them. But that's just managing the most terrifying symptom, 
not treating the actual Batten disease. A friend of Frazier's had invested in a drug company called Biomarin and told Frazier about a doctor in Columbus, Ohio, named Emily De Los Reyes, who was running a clinical trial that might help kids with Batten. Of course, Frazier and Dana sprung into action. The doctor was very kind, but she told them at the moment the study was closed, but that they should keep in touch. And that they did. We heard about the Batten's Disease Conference. They do every year, and it was in Chicago. We found out about it about a week ahead of time, and we found out that Dr. Emily was going to be there. They were doing this study, and I don't know if I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that maybe someday it'd open up to more people. So we basically rearranged our schedule two days before the conference and just said, me and Dana are going, and we begged friends. Yeah, we begged friends to help keep the girls. So we get up there, and we hung out with Dr. LaWald, who works with Dr. Emily, and Dr. Emily De Los Reyes, and just had a great time. I mean, that was our main purpose for going. We decided to go see Emily once every six months. Building that relationship with Dr. Emily, we were hopeful they were going to open a compassionate care, which means the drug, which is being studied in a clinical trial setting, then the FDA will allow additional patients to take it that are not being studied as part of the trial. Basically, it's, you've got no other option. This drug is out there. We haven't approved it, but we're going to let some more slots open up so that more patients can get access to what may or may not ever get approved as a drug. The deal was, if it was going to open, we knew it would be through Columbus Nationwide Children's Hospital, and so we were just willing to stay in touch with Dr. Emily in case it ever did, and it kind of grew and developed. And Elle got into the program in September of 16. This meant that Dana would fly up to Ohio with Elle once every two weeks to get this experimental treatment. She had to have a port put in her brain. That's a reservoir under the skin that sits on top of the skull that's got a little tube that goes down to the middle of her brain. So the medicine goes in through a shot which sits in the reservoir and they spray in to over four hours. And it basically goes all the way down to the very center of her brain and then disperses from there. And it's giving her an enzyme her body doesn't make, which that's the deal. And so that enzyme cleans out the proteins in the brain cells. And if you don't clean out the protein, it kills off the brain cells. And what we're, what we're hopeful is, is that it'll stop the progression of the disease and then in time let her start reconnecting and rebuilding damaged or, or, or what, I mean, you know, it's just hard to say what part was killed off or is it a deflated balloon or did the balloon pop? You know, I don't know. We don't know and we're willing to take the chance to figure it out and we got time and, you know, I can't worry about what that looks like in a year. I'm trying to get through to dinner tonight. And what a couple, the Gieselman's journey, a series of escalating challenges, dating, panic, marriage, miscarriage, and now this fatal diagnosis for two of their baby girls. And by the way, if you've ever seen Ordinary People, you know that most relationships don't survive such stress. That married Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland film about the stress of a marriage when there was a loss of a life. And my goodness, this brought Frazier and Dana closer together. When we come back, the rest of this segment, what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And more on Fraser and Dana, their battle, here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org, by the way, to listen to all that we do. There are quite a number of what happens when series. We also have some really fascinating stories from doctors in the field and what they go through every day 
in life struggles and life-saving and life's most difficult circumstances. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final segment of our What Happens When Healthcare Story. The Gieselman's two baby daughters were diagnosed with a fatal disease, but the youngest, L, had just gotten into a drug trial to send a cutting-edge medicine into the center of her brain to slow the disease. Let's hear more about this story from Faith. Sadly, this trial and its compassionate use came too late to help Mila. She passed away on November 26, 2016. We first met the Gieselmans some months after that, and Fraser was kind enough to talk a little bit about a subject that none of us really know how to talk about. The best way to paint the picture of Mila's death, especially in my life, and I've, I alluded or kind of talked about how me and Dana have different paths that we're going on. And I mean, Mila, I'm still much, very much in what I would call the fog of the death. And it's not nearly as uh, a reality, an acute deal. Like it's very hard. If we sit down at the computer and start flipping through pictures, like that, that gets real hard because it, I mean, that'll snap you out of the fog real quick. But other than that, I mean, like, just day to day, I think about her a lot, but it just doesn't seem a reality. It's real fuzzy, and I have a hard time figuring out how that lifts, and I'm a little, I get frustrated that it hasn't lifted quicker, because I'm concerned that I'm not, that it's going to lift, and I'm going to have forgotten a lot of things. And so I wrestle through a lot of that through grief counseling and figuring out, like, I don't want to forget. I want to feel it, but there's a healthy side to the fog and the numbness so that you can make it through the initial, like, shock is a good thing, right? You've got to have some of that. And like where Dana is, her fog has lifted a lot more than mine, and so she knows she's missing an arm, and she feels the nerves all dangling out everywhere, you know? So it's a very acute pain for her right now, and it looks different than mine. So grief can look a lot like depression, or sadness can look like depression, and they can be very different, but they look a lot alike. And so that's kind of where we're a little different. And But, but for me and, and where I am, I mean, there's a, it's just... The, the the reality is not there except it's very there's a very empty feeling like something's not there a lot of Fraser's friends ask him how he keeps working his day job looking for treatments for batten and doing all the other normal daddy things during this fog of grief he has this great answer well man if I don't get up and put cereal in the girls bowls who will it's not a choice you're making that's the deal I mean that's that's the deal and so you just rest and we get glimpses of 
a bigger, more beautiful plan going on here. And quite frankly, I get a glimpse every day when I look at a picture of Mila because she's healed. And 90% of the pictures you're going to see of Mila, she's not healed. She's got braces or whatever. And, you know, you, it's hard not to look at it and know that she's doing a lot better now than she was. I just wish she was with me, right? I mean, it's, you know, I miss her. Much more has happened since we first met the Gieselman family. The nonprofit Kemmons Wilson Family Center for Good Grief that has been a huge help to Frazier, Dana, their oldest daughter, Ann Carlisle, and all their family and friends, opened a new location in Midtown Memphis, named after Milla Gieselman. And with the support of individuals, foundations, and corporations, Milla's house will help many more families through their grief journeys at no cost to them. The FDA also approved BioMarin's enzyme replacement therapy for this form of Batten disease. The new treatment is called Brunura, and it was approved with priority review, breakthrough therapy, and orphan drug designations, which assists and encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases. Because Elle has been on that treatment as part of the Compassionate Use Program, the disease has progressed much more slowly in her than it did in Mila. But taking a little kid on a three-day plane trip every two weeks is no cakewalk, even under the best of circumstances. So now that Brunura is approved, the Gieselmans fought to get the treatment delivered at their local Memphis hospital. This took some doing. Quite a lot, actually. Frazier was on the phone with the insurance company for one to three hours a day, five days a week, for two months. Both the drug company Biomarin and the local Memphis Labonner Children's Hospital were very supportive. But Brunura was still an incredibly new, specialized, and expensive medicine in process. Eventually, Blue Cross Blue Shield agreed to cover Elle's treatment. I guess they also realized that when it comes to taking care of their kids, nothing can get in the way of Frazier and Dana. They just won't quit. Let's end on this note from Frazier. You know, when I was 25 and thinking where I wanted to be when I was 50 is different than where I am now and where I want to be at 50. You know, and we'll figure it out. It just may look a little different. We're not promised anything easy, good, or anything here. You're promised to be restored when you die and you're in heaven. So, you know, there is a bigger plan. We believe and know that God is using our story to bring more people to Him and to growth and do things bigger within His world. And I kind of remind people a lot of times, you know, it doesn't matter what if things are going good in my world or things are going bad in my world. I like it. I don't like it. Whatever. The sun's coming up tomorrow. And, you know, I can't stop the sun. I don't control the sun. It's just a kind of a reminder to get outside of your own head and realize that the earth, the world, nothing revolves around anything you get or don't get or what happens. That I can't stop that sun, and you know you just don't have as much control as you think you do. And I think it hits on like the whole marriage thing, and some of the foundations that we laid is you just trust. Like I'm going to die to myself because there's a bigger plan here. And what we've experienced is that in dying to yourself in a relationship here, you do experience things in a different way and in a deeper way. And it did lay a lot of foundation for a lot of what we've experienced in the last three to four years. But even before that, I mean, even before things got crazy in our family life and all, we still experience a lot of that. There, there, there is a goodness. You experience a sense of joy, not necessarily happiness, which are different. And that's what I'd say we've experienced a lot of 
joy through everything we're going through, but we experience a lot of that joy even before that. It's kind of like, I liken it to uh, when you tell somebody you love them, you know you love them, but uh, what we say a lot is, I like you. And the whole point being, like, I choose to love you. We made the vows, I made the commitments, and I'm not going anywhere, but also I like you. Frazier, Dana, and Carlisle, Mila and Elle are hard people not to like. And great job to the entire team, as always. And now we're joined by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. And Jim, we've heard a few of these stories now. This is a young Christian couple in the South. We had a secular couple in the Midwest. And I think we're going to be hearing from every type of faith, every class, and every creed of citizen here about our, our stories about health care. What does it take to discover, develop, and bring to market drugs like this one that are extending this incredible couple's young daughter's life? Well, drugs are very expensive to develop. So probably the best study of this done by a center at Tufts University and actually repeated uh, over many years now says that on average it costs $2.8 billion to bring a drug to market, to go through a period which typically takes about 15 years, uh, many, many failures along the way. So it's not, it's not very easy and it's extremely risky and extremely costly to bring a drug to the point where human beings can actually use it. And what about rare disease drugs in particular, Jim? As we mentioned, these drugs can be extremely expensive, but are often the only options for patients in life-or-death situations. How do these drugs fit into our healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really the big problem because the, the driver for the kind of money that needs to be spent on research for the typical drug, uh, all this money is really the result of the fact that at the end, you've got a, a market. I mean, I hate to use that word, but that's true. You've got an audience for a medicine that will save people's lives. In the case of, of orphan drugs or uh, diseases that very few people have, there's not that big an audience. And that's why public policy, government policy, has to somehow favor these kinds of drugs, give them a little bit of a boost. And when that happens, you see a lot more of these drugs come onto the market. And that really all began in the mid-1980s. And now we're really seeing a lot of orphan drugs being produced. And that's a great thing for families like the Gieselins. And, Jim, I think just to clarify, you know, when we're looking at heart drugs, um, this this disease affects so many people that drug companies are going to go in there because they're going to. Well, let's face it; they're in the, they're in the business to get a return. There are a lot of people who suffer from a heart disease. These are narrow narrow diseases. Talk about that. That's right. So the government gives an incentive, which is basically the ability to get the drug approved very quickly, and also uh, to essentially market uh, to other drug companies an ability to get drugs approved quickly. And this is, this is very important to drug companies. I mean, obviously, the drug has to meet the standards of the Food and Drug Administration, but there's a, a fast-track system. So that's the incentive, and I think that's a very good incentive that seems to be working. But I want to add one other thing that's really important. Drug companies learn, scientists learn from their failures. They learn even in a case where they're making a drug for a very small number of people. And what they learn in developing that 
drug for a small number of people can be applied to many. So we're going to see that, and we already are seeing that with orphan drugs. Well, Jim, thanks as always. And it's Jim Glassman, our chief health editor here at Our American Stories, our What Happens When series, and what a family, what a story. And thanks, Jim, as always, for bringing these stories to us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the Gieselman story, and what a story it is. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear more of our What Happens When series. American stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life, and God bless him for doing it, because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a a, a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, we hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong. 18-year-old Nick Fout pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Fout, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank say district officials that involved another student and 12 chickens in all. Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at 6, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours. Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key, his father says, came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd, unexpected places. And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse. 
This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923 in Chialis, Washington. As a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment, Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending act he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway, or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecombe that made Oliver Porky Bicker a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon, the pilot arrived, and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. Thick black smoke began to bellow skywards. The crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974 to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound, where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed. Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires and spray painted in the snow beside the tires in 50 foot high black letters were the words, April Fools. 
The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecombe. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blow. Let me say it now. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blow. Ground she's moving under me. Our American Stories in October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month, and throughout this month, we'll bring you stories that will surprise you and move you. And we do this because, well, like autism, like Alzheimer's, these are things that Americans are struggling with and through as we speak, and it's by the millions. And so we bring this to you, and hopefully you can share your stories with us. But right now, let's go to our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. I mean, we all find our manhood in different ways. Some guys find their manhood just by counting their money. I mean, that's what makes them happy. Some guys find their manhood by playing with their toys. But yes, fighting has given Garrett that opportunity to prove that he is a man. Garrett Holov isn't any old fighter. He has Down Syndrome, and he goes by the nickname G-Money, or G for short. I've been like fighting for years. I love the sport, and I always love the sport. Chop, 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 chop. And he's not involved in just any old kind of fighting. He's involved in mixed martial arts, better known as MMA. Awesome. Personally, I think MMA is barbaric. People call it human cockfighting. It's violent, and there's blood all over the cage. I think people who don't know about MMA or understand MMA immediately think it's disgusting. Whether you like MMA or not, it's here to stay. MMA is no-holds-barred fighting, an extreme sport, where contestants mix the fighting techniques of wrestling and boxing, and also those of martial arts such as kickboxing, judo, and karate. Here's his father, Mitch. Garrett is very much aware that he has Down syndrome. He's aware of how it's affected his life. You know, he's, he's, he's coming with a, with a half a lunchbox to work every day, and he works as hard as anybody else. He won't quit, and every day he comes to work. But I want you always to come this way at all time, all right? No. And here's his mom, Susan. That first month was like, why us? Why me? Why, you know, will we ever be happy? Susan's become happy because her son is happy. What do you punch like? I punch hard as <laughs> Here's one of the people that first discovered the Hollow family story. 
Jen Herrera. I was a reporter for the local ABC affiliate down in Miami. I remember the story aired in the 11 o'clock news that night about this great kid and his dad. And I remember getting to work the next day. People were pissed. People could not believe that a father was letting his son with Down syndrome get into MMA. Um, but usually the stories that are the most talked about are the best stories. Uh, it was no surprise when Mitch contacted me a couple of years later that the story had gone from father and son bonding time to work out and lose weight to the rights of a disabled person. In August of 2013, Garrett was supposed to have his first sanctioned fight in Florida. Supposed to have. And against this man, better known as the Cerebral Assassin. I'm David Steffen. I have mild cerebral palsy on my left side, so uh, my right side is perfectly able-bodied. Um, well, my left side is limited range of motion. Me and Garrett were supposed to fight a year ago. Um, everything was planned. Um, Florida started taking some negative um, press. Here's famed sports broadcaster Brian Gumble. Their talents aren't exceptional or noteworthy, but their disabilities are. You see, Stefan has cerebral palsy and Holov has Down syndrome. And while they're each to be applauded for their accomplishments, the same can't be said for those who are willing and eager to see them engage in a no holes barred fight in a cage for the supposed enjoyment of others. Two minutes before the fight was actually going to happen, I was actually all taped up, gloved up, ready to walk out to my entrance song. They gave a cease and desist letter and told us we were not allowed to fight. Lee County, the state of Florida, have hit us with a notice to cease and desist on this fight. It was heartbreaking. I mean, it was, it was something I've never felt ever in my life. The whole thing just seems so contrived and so convoluted and I just couldn't believe that right then and there two seconds before they were gonna you know their hands were wrapped it, it just didn't make sense it didn't sit well when you see how much he loves this sport you can't imagine somebody or an entire state telling him that he can't do what he wants to do these guys have been working real hard, not just for weeks, but for months and years to get to this point and to have the state of Florida take away their rights as citizens of the state of Florida is, is the worst thing imaginable. Uh, these guys deserve to fight just like everybody else. It destroyed their dream. Um, it really did. I was going to dead it inside. No one goes as far to get to know myself or Garrett or any other fighter with disability. They see articles that just say cerebral palsy and Down syndrome set to fight. So when people read that, they get scared. <laughs> Thanks everybody for coming out, I appreciate it. I want you to go to court to get justice. We're suing the state of Florida for, for past discrimination for not allowing Garrett and David to fight. We're also suing them for the opportunity to fight in the future, to earn that right to fight. This is not going to stand. Unable to fight in his home state, Garrett took his dream to a state that would accept it, Missouri. This future fight is between some individuals who have been denied their opportunity to fight. 
um, over the years. And when we're letting it happen here, we're going to make history tonight. So let's give it up for these guys one more time. got to be an idiot. You've got to be brain damaged to think that I really want my son getting punched in the face. He will deny, but he's very stubborn. He doesn't wear clothes that he doesn't want to wear. He doesn't cut his hair the way he doesn't want to cut it. He doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. I mean, he's his own man. just getting acquainted with what people with Down syndrome can really do. It's Garrett's generation that is really proving this. He's definitely a pioneer as an adaptive athlete in mixed martial arts. And I think it's his hope that he sees more people come behind him. You did it. I love you, Mom. I love you, too. You did it. I'm a fan. This is I am. Only thing I want to be it's a fire. In 2014, Garrett was named Self-Advocate of the Year by America's National Down Syndrome Society. And the judge in their case ruled that the state of Florida had to abide by the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think fighting in justice makes me stronger. More powerful. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Let's fight! Here we go! Great job on that, Alex and Greg. And what a great story. I can't call him Garrett. I gotta call him G-Money. And G-Money, teaching us all how to live. What a father. What a son. And Brian Gumbel, shame on you. Listen to yourself. I want to send that soundbite of him to himself. His condescension. His look at people with disabilities as if somehow they're not entitled to play sports. And by the way, Brian Gumble makes a living from sports. Great storytelling here on Our American Stories. Life-affirming storytelling you'll get here each and every day. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here. We tell stories about history, about sports, arts, entertainment, and of course, we've told stories about cities, and a city that was in the news a lot. Uh, Houston was in the news because of a storm, and you heard a lot about that city, and I want to give you just a sampling before we bring on our guest to counter the narrative that you heard. This is a summary from the Washington Post, Slate, The Guardian, Newsweek, and NPR. Quote, Hurricane Harvey was a catastrophe of epic proportions. Flood water is everywhere. People can only move around the city using boats and helicopters. Local officials failed to order evacuations, so Eustonians have been forced from their homes as floodwaters rose and the death toll is horrific and rising. Another, but Houston had it coming. It's a miserable hot swamp where no one wants to live. It embraced a Wild West approach to growth, paved over wetlands, and refused to implement zoning, which would have lessened the impact of Harvey by requiring developers to mitigate the impact of new projects. Moreover, it is the global center of the energy business, which is the biggest driver of climate change, one impact of which is the increased frequency and severity of hurricanes like Harvey. And joining us to counter this narrative is a person who knows a little bit about the city of Houston, Leo Lindbeck, a Houstonian, a sixth-generation Texan, the CEO of the Aquinas Companies, which is involved in construction, real estate, and biotech. Leo is also the father of five, three of whom are adopted, and he's worked hard to grow the number of charter schools in Houston. And Leo, thanks for joining us. Sure, Lee. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. You know, it sounds like such a horrible place to live. Why is everybody moving there, Leo? Oh, you know, first of all, it's not a horrible place to live. It's a great place to live. It may be like not a great place to visit in the summer, um, but uh, but it's a great place to live. And people move here for opportunity. It's really simple, right? Uh, Houston still has as its core this sense of opportunity that you can come here, whether you're poor, working class, middle class, and you can move up in the world, right? You can achieve a higher level of prosperity. And that opportunity is what keeps bringing people to Houston and fuels our growth. Talk about that growth, Leo. You've been there a long time. What was Houston like when you were a kid? How big was it? How big is it now? Where does it rank in the United States in terms of population? And by the way, diversity, ethnic diversity, Leo. Yeah, it's a very diverse place, very international city. You know, I when I was a kid, I, I you know, the the city was less than a million people. It was, you know, it was a, you know, a kind of a small southern Texas city. Um, and uh, now the metro area is about six point six million people, and uh, you know, it, it it's a fourth largest city in the United States and growing and projected to become number three in the next couple of decades. And, uh, you know, it's really an extraordinary, extraordinary place. And the idea that it's driven by energy alone, I mean, it's remarkable how Houston withstood the energy shock when oil prices shot down. Generally, this would have put the state of Texas on its heels. Uh, But Texas has changed and most certainly Houston's changed. Talk about the dynamic nature of the Houston economy, Leo, because it's not what it used to be. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely true. You know, we, we, we really have emerged as the global center of the energy industry, that's for sure. But we also have you know, the largest port by tonnage in the United States, so we're a, a, an incredibly important and vibrant uh, shipping and logistics hub. We also have a, the world's largest medical center, so we have a, a place that does, you know, in the Texas Medical Center, there's over 50 institutions, uh, more than 7 million patient visits a year in an area that's bigger than the Chicago Loop, and all dedicated to, to medical care and medical research. Research. And um, of course, uh, there's a, a whole bunch of other things that we do you know, in terms of real estate and financial services. So it's really, it's, it's a much more diversified economy than when, when I was a kid. And let's run th- down now through that sort of really attack. And the media narrative on many places in the South, frankly, Leo, is really brutal. Meanwhile, the American people have been flooding to the South and to the Sun Belt over the last 20 years. Someone should actually write a book about the great migration internally in the United States. And it's a really interesting thing. But let's look at that first one. Houston is a miserably hot swamp where no one really wants to live. That's one of the things one of the uh, media alternative outlets hit upon. Talk about that. Yeah, well... uh you know, Houston during the summer is a hot place. It's in the south, right? So uh, no denying that. But nine months a year, it's a it's a lovely, pleasant place to live. And we, you know, winters here are very mild, very temperate. People do all kinds of outdoor stuff. Look, we are a flat uh, swamp. You know, was a swamp. And part of what we did is came in and we were able to sort of build the infrastructure to allow the city to grow in that. Now, you know, the 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 downside of that is it's flat and not not as interesting as being up in the mountains. But on the positive side, we have massive amounts of groundwater. And so one of the biggest constraints to growth in other communities is access to water, and we just don't have that here. Sometimes we have too much of it like Hurricane Harvey, but it's not a, it's not a constraint to our growth. And by the way, you could say the same of Minneapolis. I mean, it's wretchedly cold for three months. And and so we all live in places where we have to deal with some tough stints of weather and embraced a Wild West approach to growth. I'd want to spend some time on this, Leo, because the I, the, I think the central narrative was that, you know, it was, well, there was a lot of just grow where you want, do what you want with your property. Talk about that. Yeah, well, Houston has a very unusual way for ma- managing land use control. So we don't have zoning in the city of Houston. And land use is controlled through deed restrictions. So it's it's a very decentralized mechanism for controlling land use. And and these these deed restrictions restrict areas to residential uh so you have really long-term, cohesive, strong neighborhoods with very strong neighborhood associations. But all of that is tied into a set of deed restrictions that are tied to the property rights of the owners of the property. So there's not some political entity that sits on top of that and determines uh, what is going to happen with that land use. The, essentially, the property owners determine that. And so it's actually a very sophisticated way for managing land use. And uh, But it's something that really 
people who like top-down control systems where you know centra- centralized elite makes the decision for everyone else, people hate the, the system we have in Houston. So we become sort of the bete noir of uh, land use and, and planning community. Uh, we're the exception that proves that we don't need top-down elite planning in order to manage the growth of a city. Do you think part of the attack was that the people writing uh, the way they were writing about Houston do believe in that central planning, uh, Leo? And talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that. I mean, that's been the dominant narrative of land use and, and sort of the planning community is let's get experts who understand how cities work and let's give them the control over what land use, what we can use land for. And, and we'll set up these sort of top-down commissions that will control that land use. And of course, you know, from my perspective, that just creates a, a sort of a centralized, politicized, and ultimately very corruptible structure as opposed to one that's bottom-up, that's driven by the individual landowners coming together, agreeing on deed restrictions, having those deed restrictions enforced bottom-up. So the mentality, the planning mentality that let's put experts in charge and it will, you know, they'll do a better job. You know, it's a, it's an attractive one. It's particularly people with you know a lot of education. They they think that's that makes a lot of sense. But history has proven otherwise, right? Some of the great abuses of land use, like the ones that Jane Jacobs wrote about in uh, in some of her books, were were driven by that kind of top down politicized system. Indeed. And when we come back, more with Leo Lindbeck. A Houstonian, a sixth-generation Texan, and the CEO of the Aquinas Companies. He knows a lot about Houston and more on the narrative of Houston post-Hurricane Harvey. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Houston Story, after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Leo Lindbeck, a Houstonian, a sixth-generation Texan, and the CEO of the Aquinas Companies, and he also chases after five kids, three of whom are adopted. And Leo, again, thanks for joining us. I want to continue to go down through this narrative. They paved over the wetlands. Uh, counter that. Yeah, well, I mean, we we have lost some wetlands. There's there's no doubt about that, and there are federal regulations that control how that happens. But there's about twenty five thousand acres that have been uh, paved over, or if you will, paved over in quotes, and um, that came from a Texas A and M study. So that's legitimate. But but if you look at the amount of rainwater, the criticism was oh, you paved over all these wetlands, and if you hadn't done that, this flood wouldn't have been as bad. And that's just crazy. Because the total capacity of the that twenty five thousand acres of wetlands was like maybe four billion gallons of water, which sounds like a lot, but Hurricane Harvey dumped dumped over a trillion gallons of water. 
So it's like less than 1%. So it's one of these situations where people want to you know, ride their hobby horse. This is the big deal. Don't pave over wetlands. Well, and, and because you didn't do that, look at all this terrible devastation. But the facts just don't bear uh, up to that. So, you know, what people think of as, say, paving over wetlands, I also think of as developing housing capacity that keeps housing affordable for the working class and middle class. Yep. Right. So, you know, these are not simple questions. They involve trade-offs. Um, and I think we've done a good job in Houston managing those trade-offs. And by the way, just on a, on a separate note, because we heard so much about the catastrophic death rate. Can you correct the record there about Houston? And, and, and by the way, people died from Harvey and it was tragic. But talk about a context there, Leo. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And, you know, we really have to try to work to make sure that no one dies in a big storm like this. That's part of what we we need to focus on. Um, but the scale of the of the devastation is, is not large, right? It was less than 100 people. Um, you know, what, the number of people as a percentage, if you look at that, is, is, is these are very, very small numbers. So these were really unfortunate people um, who died in, in Again, we need to try to mitigate that, but um, within the broad context of the number of deaths and causes of deaths, this was uh, was certainly not a catastrophe. It was tragic, but it was not catastrophic. Yeah, Houston loses 40,000 people a year, and 0.1% uh, died because of Hurricane Harvey. Let's go on to another one, refusing to implement zoning, which would have lessened the impact of Harvey by requiring developers to mitigate the impacts of new projects. A lot of the talk was, and the chatter was, all these new buildings are just, well, they're just not being planned right for a storm. Talk about yeah. that. Yeah, well, there, there's a couple things that w worth hitting on there. First of all, in the greater metro area where Harvey hit, it didn't just, Harvey didn't just dump rain within the, the city limits of Houston, right? Rain, rainstorms don't really respect political boundaries, right? So um, there there are a number of communities that sort of ring Houston, including places like Sugarland, um, that are zoned. And and they're lovely communities. And they have a they have a have decided to have zoning and that's fantastic. They were flooded also, right? I mean the reality is that when you dump trillions of gallons of water, an unprecedented amount of water in in a city like Houston, you're going to flood. So zoning really has nothing to do with it. Uh, now, with respect to the idea that developers didn't mitigate their the impact of their developments, that's just one of those things where people just don't know the facts. The facts are that particularly since Hurricane Allison hit uh, years ago, all there was a big change to the detention requirements to hold the stormwater, and developers are required to mitigate the stormwater impacts of their development, and they do. It wasn't the new developments. It wasn't the new growth that was the primary uh, areas that were devastated. It was stuff that was 20, 30, 40 years old uh, or older. And by the way, New York City has a whole lot of zoning, and when Sandy hit, Sandy hit. It's the very point. You know, where rain goes, it goes. If it's a zone neighborhood, it's a flooded zone neighborhood. Let's talk okay. about the other claim, Leo. Houston is a global center of the energy business, which is the biggest driver of climate change. And, of course, climate change caused Harvey. Yeah, I, you know, let's for, for the purpose of discussion say that 
higher carbon dioxide concentrations are creating more storms. Let's, that's a very controversial statement, right? But let's say that that's true. Well, it's the energy industry in Houston, that's based in Houston, which really is hugely gas, natural gas is a hugely important part of that industry. It's that growth of the availability of natural gas and the replacement of higher carbon forms of uh, hydrocarbons with natural gas that has led to a decrease in our our CO2 emissions, right? So the energy industry in Houston is actually leading the charge through fracking technologies and horizontal drilling to bring cheap natural gas to domestic natural gas to the United States. And as a result of that, we're we are achieving those carbon dioxide emission requirements that the global warming folks say we need to do. So we're, you know, contrary to the narrative, it's actually the energy industry that's driving uh, CO2 emissions down. So it just doesn't hold together. It's just one of those things where people have this kind of narrative and a knee-jerk reaction, and they want to fit to the facts to the narrative, even if they don't fit. You bet. And let's get down to the culture of Houston. You know, the great Peter Drucker once said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I love that line. I try to repeat it everywhere I go. Families should know that line. Workplaces, churches. Talk about the culture of Houston. You write about the narrative spinners defining it as a culture of the Wild West, of rugged individualism, but you wholly disagree. You've come up with a, a term that I love called rugged communitarianism. Talk about that. I mean, look, to, to make it through a, a, an event like Harvey, a city needs three things, right? And it has to have all three. It has to have good infrastructure, right? Because if, if you don't have a way to move the stormwater out, you know, it's going to flood and that's the problem. So you got to have the physical infrastructure. You need the leadership, right? You need a, a group of people who are in charge, who make good decisions based on good plans. And then number three is you have to have a great culture. And our city is built around a family culture. People move here primarily to get a job and raise a family. And so we sort of naturally select for people who, for whom family is really important. Well, with family comes community, right? You send your kids to school. They meet other kids. You meet other parents. You go to church. You pick a house near a school or a church. And, like, we have this very strong community orientation in Houston. That's the front line of defense. It's neighbors helping neighbors, which is the biggest initial response to the storm. And the stories are all over that, you know, that people tell about the neighborly response in a place like Houston. And by the way, I would call that the social capital. That's what we like to call it because yep. people always focus on the money capital. But all these families add up to tremendous social capital, Leo. Absolutely. And, you know, financial capital is important, but if there's a, a, a tree that's fallen on your house, Right. And it's, you know, raining and you need help. You know, your neighbor, <laughs> you can have all the money in the world, but nothing's more valuable than have that neighbor with a chainsaw who can come over and help you cut down, cut the tree and get it out of the way. So, again, that's a frontline defense that we don't think about much until we're stressed, right? And under stress as a community, Houston has consistently demonstrated that we, we have strong social capital, strong local communities. And I think it's anchored in this idea that the family is the focus, right? And 
so it's a it's a special place. You know, I've lived all over the world, and I've you know, I've ended up back here because I think it's a it's a really special place. And a final talk, final point, because I wanted to connect this top down zoning with this bottom up culture. Because what you have, I believe, is deeply a bottom up culture. Talk about that. Absolutely, you know that you see it in the land use where people are basically have control over their destiny by virtue of their deed restrictions and their local neighborhood associations. And, you know, you you have it in families, you have it in a a very high level of uh, sort of church participation. It's a, you know, it's very bottom up and it's very resilient as a result of that. People don't sit around waiting for, you know, the government to do things. And, And what that what that does is that means that the people who do need the government, the the government's freer to take care of those people because they're not taking care of the average person. They're taking care of the people who really need the help. And everyone else is relying on their networks of communities. And, you know, small-scale communities are really the, the bedrock of a, of a great city culture. Indeed. And we've been talking to Leo Lindbeck, a Houstonian, a sixth-generation Texan, the CEO of the Aquinas Companies, giving you another look a time after the great Hurricane Harvey dumped trillions of gallons of water on this city. And it was Houston's greatest hour, uh, not Houston's darkest, because in the end, the character of the city came through. Leo, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, Lee. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Leo Lindbeck's story, Houston's story, here on Our American Stories. 